So over the past, geez, I guess six or seven years of coming out here, I realized something this morning, that uh, almost twice a week, and probably for the last year it's been twice a day, I've crossed over a road. And the road's Cheney Road. I don't know if that means anything to anybody, but right down the street on Cheney Road is where Delaware County Prison is. And I actually had a chance to think over this week that 2006 was actually the worst year of my entire life. Everything came to an end for me in 2006. And for those of you who don't know, I spent 10 years pretty much as a drug addict. I was a heroin addict, I was a criminal, spent time in and out out of prison. But 2006 was the end all for me. And I woke up in a six by 10 cell. And the first thing you think whenever you're in prison is, geez, how the heck did I get here? It wasn't my goal, I didn't decide one day that I wanted to go to prison in any way, shape, or form, but the small choices I made along my life ended me up in this box that there was no way I could get out of. Nothing I could do could possibly get me out of this. And at the end of the day, I really needed a new leader. Me leading myself didn't work out too well. It actually landed me a seat in convicted felonville. Um, nobody has to do that, I did it for you. <laughs> so um, the truth is I didn't know God. Uh, the only thing I really knew about God is that I cried out to him like the foxhole prayer people whenever I got busted, whenever I got in trouble, whenever I got sick, and probably when I was drunk. Um, but one interaction really at this place in George W. Hill in Delaware County Prison changed my life forever. And um, when you show up in prison, it's not like you have anything else to do, but all I had a chance to do was to watch people. And there was these two guys, one guy in particular, there was something so different. There was something unique about this guy. I had to know why. I watched him for a few weeks, and to be honest, his name was Jared Bush. I haven't been able to find him for 12 years since I got out of prison. I actually got in contact with him this week. I found him on Facebook. We had a great interaction. Um, but there was something different. I had to know why. I went over and asked him. I said, you know, like, they were weird, right? He didn't get in fights with anybody. He was kind of calm and uh, had peace in his life. And I wanted that peace. I had no peace in my life. And when I, I went over to ask him why one day, and he told me he was praying for me. And right there in the jail cell, he witnessed Jesus Christ to me, and I had a privilege of accepting him as my Lord and Savior. I was completely humbled, and I knew I didn't want to be a junkie anymore, but I didn't know what to do. I, I, I didn't know where to go. And someone literally suggested when I was in prison that, John, you should go to Chester. And I laughed out loud. I said, ha, what good can Chester do for me? What is Chester going to do for me? And if you guys remember, I'm in prison at this point, right? What could Chester do for me? But something in me, there was this small nudge, I didn't know what it was, was telling me I needed to take a trip to the other side. I needed to go, I needed to go somewhere. And my mentors and pastors would share with me how important it would be later on for me to share my experience, strength, and hope with other people. And to be honest, during that next year of me being at that long-term discipleship and recovery program, God gave me a vision. And I've heard people recently say, hey, how do I get a vision? Well, it's pretty simple. You get alone with God, and you pray, and you read his word, and you wait. You just have to wait. And the vision God gave me actually set me up for where I am today. But if I, it was all really about following this still, small voice, these little, tiny nudges that God would give me, which we call faith. And for those of us who are born-again believers, know what it's like to follow that faith, to have those little, tiny nudge. I also know what it's like not to follow those things. I know what it's like when the bigger voice of me, my me monster, kind of chokes everything out in my head. And if you're anything like me, I have these, I have these problems too, that I avoid shady people, right? I avoid challenging circumstances. Um, I'm trying to get away from anything that's rough or dangerous or challenging circumstances, as if I'm taking my life to kind of make everything safe and comfortable. 
And about two years ago, I started asking myself a whole bunch of questions, as if there was something missing out of my life. I started to ask, who am I? Where am I going? What's, what's my purpose? You know, like there was something missing, there was something wasn't quite right. I was asking, can I still grow? I was asking, are there situations that I'm avoiding in my life? Finally, I got along with God and I said, God, I need to be changed. There's something not right going on. I was comfortable working in full-time ministry, making a difference in people's life, but there was something that wasn't quite right. And finally, I asked God, why do I need to go to the other side? Why did this all need to happen? And I found reading in God's word, Jesus really addresses all things inside of his ministry. Uh, in our greenhouse Bible study that meets on Tuesday nights, we're in the book of Mark. And uh, going through Mark 4, Jesus really explains the parable of the sower and the seed. And I'm going to paraphrase the entire uh, chapter for you in my own words. Pretty much Jesus says, share my word and I'll do the rest. Right? We're called to be seed sowers and that's our responsibility and God's, God will take care of the increase out of that. But something happened when I got to Mark 4.35 and it caught my attention. In Jesus' words, it says in Mark 33, on the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. And I pondered this for some time. To be honest, I've been thinking about it for a few years. What does this actually mean? And it wasn't until I had a privilege to go to Israel this year, and by the way, if everybody wants to get deeper into the knowledge of, of the Word of God, you have to take a trip to Israel. It's like going a year or two in Bible college. But something made sense when I went, when I went to Israel. We went to this place called Caesarea Philippi, and it was a pagan area. Now, all the statues are cleared out of here by this point, but the guide really explained something. See, in the Gadara region was part of the, Decap the Decapolis, and it was a 10-city ten city region under Greek and Roman control. It's actually in Palestine and Syria. At one point, this was all under Jewish rule. And it wasn't until the revolt of the Maccabees that the Jewish people kind of fled out of that area. Um, so there were still pockets of Jewish people living in that area during the time, but no good Jew would go there. See, this was an unclean place. It was a place you would tell your children day in and day out never to go. You wouldn't ever go to the other side especially the pagan areas. And to be honest, I share these things inside of our recovery ministries. We tell people to stay away from three major things. Anybody know what it is? No? Okay, people, places, and things. Really important. All right, people, places, and things. We tell people to stay away from those things for a few reasons. One, it's very, it's very easy to be influenced by our surroundings. Paul would write, bad company corrupts good character. And why would I want to be tempted? Why would I put myself in a position to be around things that could influence me in a negative way. So I kind of get the reasoning behind that. And after all, we all know it's really easy to get into things and really difficult to get out. And again, these men were raised never to go there. They had to believe that God hated those people too. They really had to believe that. After all, these people were imposing their way of life upon the Jews. And then we have this man, God, who by night would charge their men to get into a boat in night to cross the other sea to go to the other side. He wasn't afraid of challenging the status quo in any, anything that he did. But if you're anything like me, maybe I've watched way too many movies, maybe I've seen way too many scary things, but there is nothing good that happens at night, right? Nothing good happens at night. You don't go to Kensington at night. You don't go to Chester at night. You don't go to shady places at night. Just stay home, right? It's much, much safer. Uh, but Jesus knew what these men needed, and he knew where he was taking them. 
The plot of the story really thickens when they get into a boat and go to the other side. And the boat was kind of Jesus' way to escape people. Um, they would go through a great windstorm and... Jesus falls asleep, they would wake him up because they thought that they were dying. By the way, some of these guys were professional fishermen. They spent their life on the sea. Verse 41 says, they greatly feared themselves because who can this be that even the wind and the seas obey him? They were in awe. The word says they greatly feared when they witnessed and saw the true power of God, how he was in control of every last thing. And these men just had a real-life faith experience with God. The idea is that faith always accompanies action. And these men were being groomed for something much, much bigger. Eventually, every one of them would lay down their lives for the cross. So our our story picks up in Mark chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, please open them up. We're going to start in Mark chapter 5, verse 1. And then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, a demon-possessed man, who had been dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles, shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him, and always day and night he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying out and cutting himself in stones. So when they arrive on the shore, they pretty much encounter the last thing anybody wants to see, right? Imagine pulling up your house at night, and the first thing you see is some naked guy running around, long hair, cuts all over his body, you know, pretty much running at you. It's like the last thing anybody would ever probably want to see. But clearly this man was being controlled by something else. There was something supernatural, something powerful that was controlling this man because nobody in their right mind would literally make their home where the tombs are to be away from society. This man had been tortured and oppressed for who knows how long, years possibly. And no one could tame him. The text says that no human power could deliver him or set him free. This man was literally a hopeless case. Verse five, I'm pretty sure he was quite famous because verse five says day and night he was in the mountains cutting himself and living amongst the tombs, meaning everybody knew who he was, but not for the good things. They knew who he was for the negative things. Man, and I relate to this guy, because everybody knew about me being messed up, and me being a drug addict, and me being a junkie. Clearly, I didn't know what was going on, because everybody else knew that I was messed up but me. Um, He was a tortured soul, literally discounted by society, and discounted by family, discounted by friends, and being a hopeless case, he had no value to offer anyone. And at my lowest point, I remember being homeless. And people wouldn't even look me in the eye anymore. As if I didn't matter to anyone anymore. And I know what that feeling's like. But Jesus would see something radically different in this person. And I love the fact that we get to see who Jesus really is in his word and in our own lives. We always have to remember God's way of viewing people is much, much different than ours. We see a glimpse of this in... In uh, 1 Samuel 16, when the, Sam, when, when the prophet Samuel was selecting the next king, he was actually going to anoint David, although he, he didn't know who it was yet. Verse 7 says, But when the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as men see, for man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. We're always looking at the outward. 
We're looking at the outward in our own lives. We're looking at the outward in other people's lives. But God sees things much, much different and praise him for that. He's able to look at us from the inside out. The disciples may have forgotten Jesus' mission statement. One of them says, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. God is in the mode of constantly seeking after lost and broken people and praise him. That's how we all got here today. And then Jesus, one day they would hand him the scriptures in Luke, and he would claim another reason why he was here. Luke chapter 4, the scroll says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the, Lord's, the year of the Lord's favor. And if the disciples at this point were looking for a comfy meal or a way to escape or a vacation or something else, they had the wrong motives in mind. They were about to witness something much, much greater than physical safety. And sometimes we forget, I know especially I do, that I'm the one that needs to be saved too. In Mark chapter, six, uh, chapter 5, verse 6, he picks up the story. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. He cried out with a loud voice saying, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? You kind of have to read that in a sarcastic tone. I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said, come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, what is your name? He answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. He also begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. And now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So the demons begged him, saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. And once Jesus gave them permission, the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down to a steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. This man knew Jesus. He knew his power. Never met him before. It goes to show that spirits, fallen angels, demons, understand the power that God has over them. These demons, you know, agents of the devil have a mission statement. It comes from the enemy. His job is to steal, kill, and destroy. They hate mankind. I think we have to understand that. They don't understand why God or would care or even love broken, messed up people. And I think one of the reasons why they hate us is because we're made in the image of God. Why would God give his image to people that are fallen and broken? I'm sure it blows their mind, blows my mind. Verse 7, it says, we implore you by God not to torment us, meaning these demons knew that they had an end. There was an end coming for them at some point. They knew what the end was. And by the way, for us that are born-again believers, we know where our end is. We know that we're here to spend eternity. Yeah, praise God for that. We know where we're going to spend eternity, and it's with God. It's not with them. They asked, have you come to torment us before their time? And we get a little glimpse, we're going through Revelation uh, with Pastor Bob, but we see a little glimpse of the enemy in Revelation 12, 17. He says, the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep God's commandments and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. The enemy's in a war. He hates people. There is a literal war being waged. Now here's a disclaimer. We don't have time to get into it this morning. Um, demons can't possess born-again believers that have the Spirit of God. But they can have influenced us with fiery darts and circumstances and, 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 and some other things 
We can't get into it today, but uh, I'm happy to talk about it a little bit more after service. This man, when he was asked his name, said legion. And a legion can be anywhere from 2,000 to 6,000 Roman soldiers. Um, and depending on the situation, it depended on how big it was. But I can guarantee you this. When somebody said a legion was coming, everybody shook in their boots. They knew what the outcome would be, that these people literally would steal, kill, and destroy and consume everything in their path. They took everything that they wanted. And you can see that this happened to this man's life. Everything was gone from him. And I want to let everybody know today that we're all in a battle. And the battle's not being fought with flesh and blood. Although the enemy wants us to believe that, this battle that we're in is a real spiritual battle. A few months ago, I came across a term, and it's called No Quarter, and I thought, wow, that's a great Led Zeppelin song. Thank you for the one person that left. Um, in war, the, the victor really gives no quarter. It means to take no prisoners, and it's when the victor really shows no clemency or refuses to spare the life of the opponent, meaning they fight to the end. They fight to the death. And I think a lot of times we forget that this is how the enemy is fighting. He's not taking any breaks. He's not sleeping at night in any way, shape, or form. He is literally fighting to the end. There is no peacetime mentality coming from the enemy of God. In Ephesians 6.12, it lays out what we do. It says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness. And I can say that this war is spiritual. I can honestly say I have no idea what physical war is in any way, shape, or form. I've never been a part of anything like that. And I want to thank those that, who, that have. But this battle, I know, is something that gets me day in and day out. And I was reading in 2 Corinthians, and Paul lays this out. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. They put Paul's battle and how Paul was fighting and how Christians were fighting, they equated it to a physical battle. These people from the outside said, wow, look at all these great works these people are doing. Wrong. It's the power of God working through them. He said, we do not walk in the flesh. We do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, for they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity into the obedience of Christ. And praise God for that. The battlefield, my friends, is in the mind. And a few years ago, I would put a stake in the sand with a, with a, with a few group of people down in Chester, and we would declare to pull down a stronghold inside of our urban areas. No longer do we want to see people perishing that don't know the word of God. No longer are we going to stand up as being part of the greenhouse project for people that have no opportunity to be transformed in any way, shape, or form. We want to live side by side with our neighbors and to help love them, to help change their physical situation. If it's, if it's financial or if it's spiritual, we want to love people in a way that's so unique it grabs their attention. In Mark 5, uh, the story keeps going. In 14, he says, For those who fed the, fed the swine fled, and those told in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. And when they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion 
Sitting and clothed in his right mind, they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. And they begged and pleaded with him to depart from the region. Mind-blowing, right? To be honest, Jesus isn't going to stay where somebody doesn't want him. And we have a group of people here that it seems like they're more interested in the group of swine than they were with an individual soul being transformed. But we really shouldn't be surprised at this, right? No one is rejoicing over this man, this one person that's been completely restored. Why wouldn't these people at least implore Jesus to stay to find out how he did this stuff or why he did these things? It makes sense at the end of the day when you think, most of us really don't want to be disturbed in any way, shape, or form. It's easy to get into a rut, to live a comfortable life in some way, shape, or form. And I think we all have to be honest about that. Just like Pastor Bob talked about looking into 2019. I'm pretty comfortable. I'm okay with how things are. And I think looking through this text, we see that there's three comforts that are really disturbed. The comfort, the possessions, and their religion. In our society today, we actually have it better than anybody else. Um, and I'm saying everything's perfect, but especially in the Western society. I love looking back at these men going through that storm in the boat. You wanna know why? You get to see who they really are and you get to find out who you really are when you go through difficult situations. Sometimes I think of myself up here when really in my life I'm actually down here. Difficult, challenging circumstances highlight those things. They, uh, I see that real quick. And in the face of great challenges, you find out who you are. And these men had their possessions disturbed. And I get it, nobody would want to lose their business, and I understand that. But they valued the possessions, they valued the pig, they valued their food, they valued their supplies over people. Not the first ones in the world to do it. But entitlement always leads to selfishness and self-centeredness. And it's something we talk highly about in our recovery ministries. The idea of making everything about me leaves me empty and broken at the end of the day. It's a reality that we all live with. And after working with probably about uh, over 1,000 people in recovery and people coming out of hopelessness, I know this, that it hurts to change. Change is difficult. It's rough for everybody. Sometimes it's easy to stay in your current situation than it is to put a stake in the sand to change. And I think we can all say that's a reality for us. And God showed me this exact process last year. To be honest, God gave me two words about two years ago, and they were saying God was going to be uncomfortable and vulnerable. And I'm like, gee, thanks, God. Couldn't you give me anything else? The two things you have to give me is like the worst thing anybody can possibly work on. I want to be uncomfortable, and, and I want to be challenged in any way, shape, or form in life. Uh, over the past year, I've changed jobs. I've gotten married. I've moved twice, and I started a new ministry. You know, so thank you, God, for what you're doing. Um, <laughs> at the end of the day, we're really called to be different. These people lack the heart to receive Jesus, and really because he challenged the religious systems of the day. And you know how he did that? By how he valued and loved people. It was quite different than anybody has ever seen. And I love that thinking about who Jesus really is. In verse 18 he says, when, they got, when he got into the boat, after this whole scene was done, they get into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. He wanted to go with Jesus. 
However, Jesus did not permit him and said, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And that's interesting. Why wouldn't he let Jesus go with him? And nobody can doubt that something miraculous happened here. Something completely unique happened here to this one man. And he asked Jesus to go with him, and the first thing he tells him is, go home. Tell everyone about the compassion that Jesus happened that Jesus had on him. And to be honest, this man became a living testimony. He went wherever he went. His job was to share about the compassion that this person Jesus had on him. And to be honest, he shared it not only in his home with his friends and family, but over this 10-city region. In fact, he prepares the way for Jesus. If you read a little bit further in Mark 7, 31, we really have the first Gentile missionary sent out. Miraculous. His mission was clear. He didn't have anything fancy to do. He didn't go to any ministry training. He had no seminary degree. The only thing he was charged with was to share the good things the Lord was doing. And I think that stops us today in sharing the gospel. Is we get afraid, we get, we get scared on what to say and how to defend all these things. And guys, we should study doctrine and, and apologetics and we should learn how to defend our faith. But there is no defense against sharing our story. So matter of fact, matter of fact Revelation 12, 11 says they overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony and they did not love their lives until the end. We should study to show ourselves approved. But we see this man clothed in his right mind. And Jesus needed this man and the 12 to change as well. And you know what? None of that would have happened if they went over to the other side. We see no dialogue whatsoever of, of the disciples, the apostles, in this text at all. And I believe these men were more in awe of seeing the power of Jesus Christ in this one man. And you know what? Everybody wants to ask, what happened to the swine, right? It's an interesting question. We see the power of Jesus delivering the man by the demons going into the swine. All 2,000 fled and ran into the water. No, no animal would ever do that. And I think this was the reason why those men, the disciples and everybody around it were blown away. Something completely unique happened, and this man was set free. You know, for my life to change, I had to be willing to take small steps of faith. One of that first ones for me was going to Chester. To be honest, I didn't want to go, but I knew I had to. In Mark Batterson's book, All In, I recently read it over the break, I read this quote. He said, a halfway life is no way to live. Quit holding back. Quit holding out. It's time to go all in and all out for God. The gospel costs nothing but demands everything. It's all or nothing. And when do we start believing that God wants to send us to a safe place to do easy things? That faithfulness is in holding the fort. That playing it safe is safe. There is no greater privilege than sacrifice. That radical is anything but normal. Jesus didn't die to make us safe. He died to make us dangerous. Many people are believing they're following Jesus, but in reality, they've invited Jesus to follow them. For me, going to the other side, being able to take steps of faith requires going all in. What does that look like for you in your life? I think it's a great question. There might be situations that you've been avoiding in some way, shape, or form. Little nudges, small voices that's being spoken into your life for you to do. Maybe it's getting back to just reading the Word of God. Maybe it's putting a stake in the sand to committing to pray and get alone with God. 
I think one of the challenges for me is, just, is to always remind, that, um, remind myself that misfits are not disqualified in any way, shape, or form. Matthew Barnett said, being a misfit does not qualify you from a dynamic life. It prepares you for it. It's all about using your pain for profit. And the other side looks quite, quite different from every single one of us. We do missions trip around here. We, we encourage people to get into small group studies. Uh, midweek, there are a thousand things you can get plugged in. We just had a group go up to Kensington's Emerald Street Bridge. And if you've ever been there, it is mind-blowing. The funny thing is for me is I'm always thinking about how can the other person be changed. And I'm not thinking how God needs me to be changed in the process. And I really think Jesus is calling all of us to be changed in some way, shape, or form. We're all called to conform into the image of Christ. And that process of sanctification happens over a lifetime. But the idea is God is pulling us and leading us into a deeper relationship with him. But don't make the mistake of living your life through somebody else. You know, I've tried to do that before. I tried to follow other people's leads and tried to live their life in some way, shape, or form. You have to get alone with God and seek him and find out what he's calling you to do in some way, shape, or form, and it always happens with prayer. Uh, somebody gave me a book called Culture uh, over the Christmas break, and I thought, cultured? I don't think I need to be cultured. I've been from prison to Paris. I've been everywhere in between. Why do I need to be cultured? Well, I opened it up, and I started to read it, and I found out the root word for culture um, is cultura, which really means agriculture. And you're right if you're thinking about agriculture, plow plowing, plowing, tilling, cultivation, and all these other things. Andy Kraut said, culture is what human beings make out of the world. You know what I thought? We're all building something. We're building something. If I'm building my own kingdom or I'm working on the kingdom of God, every single one of us is working on building something. And you know what building takes? Hard work. And it's very, very, very difficult. And I love reading in Matthew 16. And this is what I think about every single morning when I wake up. When Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my namesake will find it. Something happens when we live life for God and for other people. When I'm living life for me, to be honest, still today, when I'm making everything about me, we call it the me monster, whenever I'm making everything about me, my life seems to fall apart, but everything seems to make sense when I'm loving God and I'm focused on loving people. It's an L, it's a giant L. Love God, love other people. Something happens when I leave my own personal safety. Something happens when I start to step out of my own control. Jesus has room to work in those circumstances. And I believe in walking in this world with a holy discontent. I believe in saying I'm not gonna let another day happen with just thinking I'm gonna settle with how things are. I must still remember, God is moving us into a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. And for all of us today, I wanna to encourage you, going into the new year, to start your journey with faith, with prayer and faith and reading God's word. There's no better way to start. And maybe you've been stale, Pastor Bob's going into this series and I've been stale, and maybe you know what it's like to feel stuck, and maybe you're not sure about this Jesus thing any, anymore, and maybe you don't have to start with crossing a lake. Maybe you start with crossing the street to your neighbors across the road. Maybe we start with crossing the cubicle. Maybe we start with crossing a hallway or a classroom. Because at the end of the day, this man, this 
tortured man that nobody would go to was transformed. And I identify that. If it wasn't for somebody coming to me at my lotus state, I wouldn't be transformed. And what would life look like if we went into 2018, for those of us that are born again, if we actually used our life to share our story with somebody else? Everybody has one. What would our families really look like if we stepped up in faith? What would our communities look like? What would our city look like? What would this entire country look like if we really stepped out in our faith and just shared our story with one another? And guys, I'm so grateful uh, for this opportunity to be here. Please, if you could do anything, get along with God, get into his word, and pray for a mission.